Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. This is another in our extra episodes focused on the coronavirus 19 pandemic. Uh, our guest today is Jordan Hall, a person well-known to many of our listeners who's been on the show twice before. Jordan is a former corporate executive with various interesting experiences. Uh, he's one of the most insightful and broad thinkers and writers and talkers of our time, and he's a multidimensional troublemaker. Uh, one of my uh, very good friends and one of the people's opinion I respect the most. So I've asked uh, Jordan to come on and we're going to talk broadly about uh, complex systems dynamics and the ability to respond to crises like this, but not only this, because this is not the only crisis uh, our civilization is going to confront over the next 20 or 30 years. Uh, so with that, Jordan, uh, let's, uh, let's jump in. Why don't we start by talking about the intelligence to action arc, which we sometimes call sense-making. You know, one of the things I notice about our current crisis is there were intelligence reports floating up uh, as early as late December that there was a chance of a, of a pandemic, you know, chances unknown, but much higher than 1%. Uh, at that point, it would have seemed reasonable for the, our civilization, our, our country, to have invested, let's say, $10 million in doing some early uh, pre-ramp for testing. Uh, by January, there were much stronger signals coming in from the intelligence field, uh, and it would have been optimal uh, to spend $50 million maybe uh, to get real testing ramped up, put in some pre-orders for ventilators, uh, et cetera, but none of that was done. Uh, the intelligence uh, was never turned into sense, which was never bridged to action. If we were designing a uh, complex dynamic system to be able to respond to situations like this, how would we do it differently? Well, I think one of the things that actually has been noticed in this particular environment is a, a non-trivial fraction of the people in the country were in fact aware of the situation and were making you know, strong recommendations and were themselves making good choices. So it's actually kind of an interesting, uh, what we might call it like a, a sense-making monocropping problem. Um, and I'm going to you know, frankly point back to the notion of the blue church as being uh, a significant issue. So if you recall, the basic structure of the blue church is that you have a lot of very centralized decision-making. Right? So you have, you know, sensors out to the edge. You've got intelligence agencies, for example, that are watching what's going on, and they're kind of handing information analysis up chain. It gets handoff to, say, epidemiologists and epidemiologists. And you've got this large network of kind of vertically oriented structures that are trying to take information since make up, up, up. But to make choices, there's kind of a, there's bottlenecks, right? Certain decision makers have to make choices. And oftentimes, if, if an event occurs where the um, either the speed of the event, right, this exponential growth rate is a real problem for what we're dealing with, or the complexity of the event, the, the set of characteristics that make it difficult to really even understand the nature of what's happening. And we'll maybe go into a little bit more detail on that in a moment. Um, or uh, we call it like the subtlety, like the, the, the fact that there is a uh, probabilistic, this fat tail characteristic that, uh, that seems to Lev talks about a lot. Um, those three kinds of things are just really, really hard 
for that kind of sense-making and choice-making infrastructure to respond to well. I mean, it either has to over-prepare, because it's just kind of designed to move at that thickness, um, or it has to under-prepare. Uh, so what would be what would be potentially very nice would be to have a, a mechanism where we have uh, a substantially more distributed um, capacity to make choices um, and, and where the sense-making fabric is wired up to that in a number of different levels. So uh, you could imagine that if there was a way for, like imagine if you, if you have a highly, highly distributed um, CDC kind of function and you were getting some signals in the environment that there was something to be taken care of and like nine people could decide we're going to ramp up our spending on uh, this kind of medical supply. You didn't actually have to ramp it up to a large department head, but a small number of people could, could choose. They had resources that they could allocate to particular levels of uh, protection. And then what would end up happening is, as the signal became stronger, you would actually just see a larger fraction of the overall portfolio of, of choice makers making concerted actions. And in fact, you could even see them building to larger, you know, larger collections of choices. Um, and so what would then occur is that if the event actually hit, you would have a uh, a reasonably well-designed response plan already in place. And then also because if you design the system uh, smoothly, like the way the special operations in the military work, uh, the ability to then rapidly upgrade capacity on the basis of things that have already been prototyped would also be part of your design. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I'm, and I'm going to extend it a little bit. And, you know, let, me, let me know if you think this is uh, resonant with what you said. Suppose uh, we had allocated a uh, billion dollars a year for these kinds of uh, adaptive responses. Took it right out of the taxpayer's money uh, through some selection mechanism, hopefully with a fair amount of randomness in it, had, uh, you know, 10,000 people involved in making these decisions. You know, any group of 10, 10,000 people could allocate some level of authority which they had to invest, right? Yeah. Uh, further, this thing could have something like a crowdfunding mechanism. So any one of these 10,000 people uh, could kick up a crowdfunding site based on their reading of the intelligence and say, hmm, I think uh, putting some money into getting ready for testing in December of 2019 is smart and ahead of the curve. And oh, by the way, uh, my signing authority or my little pot of 10 people that I can get to co-sign with me, uh, our signing authority is uh, 100 grand. So we're putting 100 grand on this. And by the way, we're sending this notice out to the other 10,000 that we have done this. And that's a signal which will cause other people to look at the evidence and either say, hey, these guys are ass clowns and are, <laughs> are, are worried about something that doesn't matter. Or hmm, maybe I ought to think about this. And this way we get a swarming, adaptive, gradual and partial buildup of resources aimed at these problems prior to the point where you have to get a bureaucratic person to make a decision. Yeah, and that's a that's a, a you know obviously there's all kinds of, of holes in that design, but it doesn't mean it's it's a bad direction. I think that's a a good direction of what would be a very functional design. And it's it's actually interesting to notice that um, one of my friends, a guy named Adam Robinson, um, uses signals in the financial markets to help him get a sense of what's going on in the world, and th that's actually not that different. You know, so for example, if you if you take a look at the uh, at stock prices, you actually saw, for example, the airline stocks, uh, particularly. Uh, international airlines began to move into a strong negative territory in, in comparison to sort of broader markets quite early into the into the event. Right? So the people who are in a position where they have skin in the game and have um, and therefore both interest and motivation to have really sensitive awareness of what's likely to happen in the future 
we're already discounting airline stocks well, and we're talking like early January, late December. And I'm not doing Chinese airline stocks, I mean international airline stocks. And so if you could imagine if there was a way, you know, I, I don't know exactly how to do it, but if there's a way for them to kind of like create a long position, which is basically what you're saying, in response mechanisms, you know, in some sense, like right now, it's funny, like if you took a trading pair and you compared like uh, an air, airline stocks to like telecommunications companies, like Zoom conferencing, um, you would see, of course, that, that Zoom conferencing has gone way up and airline stocks have gone way down. So you're, you're able to kind of long a social infrastructure that is responsive to the environment. Now, if you could, what you're basically saying is, can we build a, an infrastructure that's more in the uh, direct hands-on that has a similar construct? You know, a bunch of people, diverse, with some form of skin in the game, um, have some mechanism to, uh, you know, choose to make on their own, on their own, uh, on their own account on their own decision authority, certain qualities of investment on the basis of what they think is unfolding. And then you have some mechanism where other people can, um, and, and again, or sorry, so yes, you can do that. And then the next thing I just wanted to bring up is this notion of, um, how do we say it right? It's like uh, uh, chaos in the, trans, in the transform from chaos into order. The very earliest stages are the hardest, right? You just haven't got a clue what's going on. I'll give you an example right now in hospitals. And this is not the case in China or, or uh, Italy because they've already been through it. So, you know, the, the details of what exactly is going to go wrong in hospitals as the, as the case count starts to ramp, the answer is we don't know. It's actually a mystery. It's fog of war. Um, and so the learning curve on that front is extremely high. But once you've learned a little bit, if you have mechanisms in place to scale those learnings across the entire system, you can very rapidly respond, right? So if you actually wire up a system, we've got highly distributed capacities to allow people to use their local sense making and, and the choices that they make appropriately skin in the game, send signal out to the rest of the environment and actually prepare the actual infrastructure in a kind of a heterogeneous way. And then you've also built a mechanism for being able to take early prototypes and scale the learnings of those prototype systems wide quickly. Then you have a response infrastructure that can handle uh, both rapid and complex and subtle systems dynamics. Yes. However, yes, you can wait to learn from experience, but I would suggest another uh, potential use of, uh, you know, shall we call it this anticipation fund, is one could do simulations. I mean, you know, with live bodies, right? Uh, for not a lot of money, a few million dollars, you could take nice. a medium-sized county someplace and say, we're going to uh, literally overrun it with bodies and simulate a, uh, a pandemic and see what breaks. Awesome. It's funny. If you could just find a way to construct a, uh, an environment where people were empowered and incentivized to do that, where, you know, making the wrong bet caused them to feel some kind of negative consequence, but making the right bet gave them an asymmetric positive consequence, then yeah, you could absolutely see some small town going, you know what, we're going to try this. And then those learnings would be at least, they'd be meaningful. And, in those early stages, meaningfully more than zero is a significant differentiator. Yep, but that's where I see this complex system dynamics response unit. They're the ones that are, are going to see it, and they can basically bribe people into it. Go to a you know medium-sized county and say, "Hey guys, we'll pay you a three million dollar bonus to participate in this. Uh, we're going <laughs> to spend another seven million dollars randing up a bunch of people from central castings that put ketchup all over themselves and coming out of their various orifices, and we're going to imagine that you guys have a zombie apocalypse grade pandemic here in your county. Are you in? Right? Well, sooner or later so, someone's going to say yes <laughs> so it's what's, what's interesting as you're saying that is it's um it is you know somewhat well known across the internet that there was in fact a coronavirus simulation 
that was done at the level of, I think the World Health Organization or some kind of transnational organization not that long ago. Like yeah, November, a, I believe it was. Yeah. So, you know, the, the key is not necessarily, so, so there's something about that, but the notion of doing that kind of an idea exists. And the challenge I think is to figure out how to, how to take the learnings that have already been done by organizations like the military um, and try to, to, to learn how to scale those kinds of ideas into, into the broader environment. And what I mean there is that you know, around about the Vietnam War, we began to realize that we're not fighting the Nazis anymore, and that the, the nature of the field of combat had a lot more uh, pace of change and flexibility and, the, and uh, by the way, variants of different kinds of enemies, you know, getting into fourth generation warfare and asymmetric warfare. And so the, the military just had to learn to build a completely different capacity to deal with something which in the military domain is quite similar to what we're talking about at the level of just complex systems dynamics in general. So because, okay, great. Um, and, then, and then the next point is just to recognize that, uh, you know, I, I guess in some sense, obviously now this is not esoteric you know, we're spending I don't know exactly what the bill on this fucking thing is going to be, but I know it's going to be pretty big. And it's certainly with a T, right? We're talking yeah. about several T's. So that's why I'm saying uh, you can afford to uh, have a slush fund of some considerable size that as long as you can design it fluidly and, as you say, with skin in the game and feedback dynamics, it makes a shitload of sense to have a uh, you know, uh, system dynamics uh, response team spending serious money every year uh, doing war games, developing capability, making bets, sending signals, et cetera, to avoid getting whacked for big T's, right? Right. Now, we, we shouldn't, uh, you know, under, how do I say this, underestimate the, the challenge of actually building something like this because, of course, you've got to deal with the fact that, for, for example, in the current circumstance, as I think you've tweeted, um, there's a series of decision points where a set of, of interventions on the part of the, of the country um, radically reduce the impact. Uh, but the interventions have a cost and the information environment is, is subtle and complex. And so the ability to make a choice to say, okay, I'm going to make a, a bold intervention at X cost, um, which guarantees that I've actually made an investment at this cost. Um, and and then not know for sure that you actually made a wise investment runs into all kinds of um, you know, political complications. So you know, as we're seeing right now, like literally, um, we've got a, on the one hand, some cohort of people are saying, look, shut everything down, quarantine everything, do it for four weeks. And then what was it called? The, the hammer and the dance. I think that name yep. got out. Yep. That was and really then, good. The hammer and the dance. If you guys haven't read it, look it up. Type in hammer and the dance into the Google and you'll see a damn excellent essay. And, um, and so the dance part is then, okay, let things open up and, and then keep an eye on things with testing and tracing, all kinds of other protocols, and boom, you can migrate. This is like an efficient frontier. Um, but of course, that's going to cost something, right? That's going to have real impact on the economy and on, on human beings. It's not the, uh, you know, um, unaware of that. So then you've got the other side. And by the way, the other side is not, batshit insane you know this this levitt guy is his models are not even vaguely unreasonable and his models say it's actually not that big a deal if we just sort of sat around um you would actually see that we would be a pop and a fizzle and it'd kind of be over and then you would save all that energy that you would otherwise have put into the economy and of course there's a whole bunch of people who don't want to have negative economic consequences so you've got actually a real significant challenge that in many cases uh, even as you can definitely do stuff that's rising up from from a sort of a distributed network, there are points at which choice making reaches levels where having a mechanism that can resolve that level of tension 
is, how do I say, decidedly non-trivial. Like exactly how you do that is tricky. Now, of course, the answer to that is an answer that's going to be tri for, tricky for us to deal with, which is compartmentalization. You know, if, if I've got the entire United States as entrained as a single object and the whole thing has to make a single choice as a, as a chunk, um, obviously what that means is that we're putting more chips on that bet. Whereas, for example, in the case of uh, Europe, you know, Italy makes one choice and Spain makes another choice and, and, and the Netherlands makes another choice. And to, to be sure, particularly in the case of a pandemic, there's contagion cross-border. We should be aware of it. But there, at least there's a decoupling. So in principle, that should allow there to be uh, sort of heterogeneous choices and then a, an ability to basically have a uh, resilience, right? You, you have a, you, you've monocropped instead of, I mean, you, you've uh, polycropped instead of monocropped. There's something to be, we have to really think about how we actually construct the actual uh, network or the geometry of our choice-making infrastructure so that we can um, have the capacity to make these kinds of choices in a way that are, don't create very, very heavy, like all at once big things that have to be made at the top, but can actually allow larger or smaller pieces to actually make effective choices that are, that in some cases, maybe way, way differently. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and uh, you know, this is one of the things that's also coming clear to me is that we should be, as a society, really thinking carefully how to build our society in a much more modular fashion, right? So that you go down to the county level, and the county level has a level of resilience to be able to stand in place for 60 days. I mean, right. Some extra warehouses, et cetera. If, you know, in which case, Westchester County, when the uh, new Rochelle thing started, just said, all right, Boom, Westchester County is now on lockdown. Westchester County, by the way, is self-sufficient for 60 days. No one's going to suffer. Uh, and we would have probably nipped the New York outbreak in its bud. But because uh, Westchester County is kind of in a confusing fashion, interwoven with New York City and everything else, and that there's no simple way to break the circuits, uh, there was no simple decision to be made. And right. so, no, so no decision was made until it was too late. Yeah, and so this is, um, I think if we kind of pop up above, and I don't know if, if you mentioned this in this call or, or what we were chatting about before, if the message that certainly I have been sending, and I think you and I both have been very much sending to the world at large, is this is this particular crisis, the, the, the COVID-19 crisis, and then the financial crisis that is connected to it, is a, an example of just the normal. Like this is the world we're living in. Um, and it's a world where we're going to be experiencing a very large number of, of systemic perturbations that will have characteristics of exponential consequences, uh, and they'll have characteristics of complex systems consequences, where, for example, a response at the medical level actually has implications in terms of like unemployment lines. Um, and so we just have to, we actually we have, just have to re-engineer the way that we do things as a civilization to just be adaptive to the environment that we find ourselves in. I mean, that phrase should just be obvious. And then we just, just look at the reality and say, okay, what are the environment we find ourselves in? And then you start making the moves. Um, so we want to talk about like, what's the, what are possible end states? Like how might this thing play out? I, I can tell you one, one thing with extremely high level of confidence, like damn near certitude is that, um, it's not really a matter of if we, kind of, we make these sorts of changes. It's a matter of when and how painful. So if you kind of take the exact scenario that we're in, which is if we had just been paying attention better and we just had built the capacity to respond to the signals we were getting and made choices, better choices earlier, we could have saved ourselves an enormous amount of pain and enormous amount of money. Right? Take that lesson and apply that lesson broadly. Right? This event is the equivalent of you know, the first guys who are getting sick in, in, in China. You can, I can look at this event and say, oh, wow, 
this kind of thing is going to begin to happen more and more and more. And the longer I wait and the longer I stall changing stuff that I need to change to be able to be responsive to reality, all that's happening is that I'm delaying the implications and I'm I'm raising the stakes. And eventually I will for sure change because reality has a very strong capacity to make me do what it wants. Um, so the best choice is just to figure out how to adapt to it now. So you minimize the, uh, the negative consequences, but you know, well, human that, beings are tough to sell on that. Yeah. But, and of course that requires people moving from a linear, uh, essentially Newtonian approach to the world to a true complex systems approach, uh, which is slowly propagating, but it is by far not the norm of how even very well educated and experienced people operate. Yeah, that's for sure. And I mean, and it's, it's a problem, of course, is that it's a lot of these things, even if you hold those kinds of ideas, call it cognitively, you have them ideas, if you haven't actually experienced them in, in, in your life, then it's hard to do. But I mean, fortunately, in some sense, everybody right now is getting some sense of it. Like we're seeing exponential curves. Everybody's producing exponential curves. And you're getting to, we're getting to watch the dots. Every day the dot stays on the curve. I'm like, wow, look at that. That's what an exponential curve looks like. And there it is. Um, and of course, by the way, Elon Musk's critique is sort of beautifully accurate and completely irrelevant, which is that there are no exponential curves in nature. It's definitely a sigmoid. Um, or by the way, there are things that are exponential and then collapse. Those are also things that exist in nature. Uh, but the first part of the sigmoid treated as an exponential because in terms of making choices, that's the way that you have to deal with it. Absolutely. Um, and we do not want to get into the top of the sigmoid here, fans. Let us be clear about that, right? Right. So I think that's kind of the moral lesson is to, to the extent possible, just recognize that um, the seeing the 1950s, and there's lots of good reasons to understand that the environment that we are in, many, largely because of the world that we've built, right? This fact that we have billions of people or millions of people moving every day through giant global transportation networks, is a big reason why this thing was able to hit so hard and so fast and surprise so many people. Um, you know, the, the fact that we have uh, increasingly networked our, our, our electronics or the power systems into cybernetic systems um, means that there will be a cyber event of this sort at some point in the future. Um, you know, fill in the blank. There's just a very large number of, of phenomena that are part of the world that we live in that have these kinds of characteristics. And so hopefully what will happen is that the, uh, you know, the pain and the learnings, the forced learnings, the unpleasant learnings of this particular event will lead to a, uh, a choice to actually respond with long-term effectiveness, to actually say, okay, let's, let's really do the hard work of re-engineering systems that can actually be adapted to this environment. That would be a, a really great thing. Yep, absolutely agree. And that would be a big positive learning that take, help our uh, civilization uh, head in a meaningfully more intelligent way towards what comes next, because we are going to have a whole bunch of these things between now and the end of, this, of the century, whether it's uh, the backlash from climate or whether it's uh, you know, the hacker attack from hell or whether it's, uh, it certainly will include more and more of these pandemics. So uh, we've, yeah. got to, we've got to be uh, ready to deal with a world that's much more complex than we're ready for today, because uh, we're there. Uh, let's hop back to something we talked about a little bit before this call. Uh, which is uh, how to start to take action and prototype uh, in this area between sense make, making and small scale action taking and large bureaucratic movements. Uh, I think we talked about you know the agile philosophy as a way to, to essentially start action prior to big bureaucratic buy-in. 
Yeah, so you know the, the military went through this development and built up special operations, and then uh, the software industry went through the same basic kind of learning curve and built up agile, right? I mean, you, you, you know this. There was the, uh, the waterfall technique, which works really good when you're building moon rockets, but as the software industry began to deal with the reality that the, the landscape was changing rapidly, and it was very difficult to actually know what, what the end state was going to look like, they had to change their development methodologies to use this thing called Agile, right? which basically meant that you, you built something, and then you saw what happened, then you built more, and then you saw what happened, you built more. You kind of built an iterative feedback loop that included, you basically built a tighter OODA loop, if we know that language. Um, and we can talk, I mean, obviously I tend to go more theoretical, but if you talk about it in terms of practicality, um, if you think about the same basic mechanism of empowering people to uh, respond quickly, you can also think about your response capacity could be using a lot of agile methodology. Um, it's actually kind of interesting to contemplate what that would look like and how that would empower people, uh, particularly now that we're talking about things like UBI going from insane to mainstream. Isn't that crazy? Like you and I were like in like 10 years ago, we're saying this needed to happen. Universal basic income needed to happen. And I think we were pretty much laughed out of the room. And then Andrew Yang is kind of laughed out of the room three months ago. And I think everybody right now is only, only dickering on how much and how long. And how to implement it. It's quite remarkable. Okay, yeah. And by the way, just, just what I'm saying is that you could actually imagine, like imagine universal basic income is in some sense conceptualized as a, a standing reserve of people's time focused on this kind of like general purpose um, decentralized sense making and choice making where you actually could have makers, people who are making mechanical capacity could be looking what's going on and say, Oh, I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to spin up a project group focused on being able to fab fabricate N100 masks because as I'm seeing the data, it's telling me the N95 masks aren't actually a very good idea. And, you know, and you get a tiny little micro fabrication facility that's able to prototype something small. And, but if it works, then again, the ability to scale ideas is actually very easy. Yep, and having that communications link to share. I'll give you an example. Our local Stanton makerspace is already working on prototypes for shields to go over masks so that they'll last longer. Uh, hmm. that, can be, that can be 3D printed. Uh, somebody up in the DC area designed it. Unfortunately, they didn't post the design publicly. They sort of require you to go and ask permission, which our people have, and gotten the, gotten the uh, file. Hopefully this file, will get, once it's vetted, will get out into the world. And makerspaces all over the world can start building these things, giving them to hospitals that will triple or quadruple the use for life of their, uh, of their masks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, it ends up with a... Um it's a very different topology, but you said something that I think is very important is the communication channels, the, the ability to have open comms, so, so that good ideas actually can be perceived and flow, not closed comms. Um, and then you know, this ability for people to identify good ideas and upregulate up those ideas. And this is very much like Dave Snowden's point of how you operate in complexity is there's never an end point. You're always moving, right? Because the system's always changing. And your basic choice is, you know, more of this and less of this. You're constantly moving through an environment of upregulating certain things and downregulating certain things and, you know, building a, a, an overall system at the economic and at the sensing level that has that kind of a characteristic to it is the, is the story, right? That's the thing that we've got to figure out. And it doesn't look like, this is the thing, like it doesn't, we have to work like punctuated equilibrium. 
almost everything we're building right now is a combination of 1950s and sort of 70s era kludges. And then like this little eruption that happened in software that's tried to figure out how to, how to operate in a non-1970s way, but nonetheless still doesn't fully operate the way that it naturally knows how to be. Yep. We had a very interesting uh, conversation on the podcast with Dan Mezik, uh, who's trying his damnedest to put Agile into big corporations. And here it is 2020. And I was horrified how little progress they're making, right? It's happening, but very, very slowly. As you say, most of the world, it might as well still be 1975. <laughs> I imagine if you looked in the government, it'd be even worse. Yeah. Well, I happen to know the IRS is still using, what is it, COBOL for running their entire software system, some sort of yeah, I think it is COBOL. Which yeah, 1950s you- vintage language, absolutely. Well, let's go to one last topic before we wrap up here. I mean, these extra podcasts are aimed to be short. And that is one of the things that seems to be lacking in our national response, uh, certainly lacking in our national response, is coordination, kind of vertical and horizontal coordination. And as you know, one of my pet models of the past, it's on a smaller scale, of course, is uh, the Apollo Mission Control System, which was this astounding real-time and non-real-time series of decision loops all linked together with, you know, 1960 uh, vintage technology, but it worked unbelievably well. Is it possible to imagine building something like that so that we could have a truly coordinated, operating on multi-time scales, multi-geographic uh, scale ways to respond to problems like this so that we don't have, you know, one governor doing X and the other governor doing Y. We don't have uh, the president sending a signal that's uh, at 90 degrees from what the head of NIH is saying. Uh, so if we had a, is it possible to be able to have on standby and activate on need a mission control system for our whole society uh, to deal with one of these, uh, you know, major systemic risks? Yeah, I, I think the answer is yes. I don't think it's trivial, but I think it's yes. So let's just, you know, try to make it somewhat concrete. All right, so imagine this. Imagine, and by the way, like none of this is in some sense hard. So imagine if you had uh, a database that had everybody in it and it had a mapping of kind of all of their skills and maybe a certain kind of psychological profiles, like the, the, way, the way they think. And then you also had some, you know, the, the aforementioned sort of sense that that group is kind of sensing things, right? So looking around and seeing stuff. And there was a way to escalate the sensing to the point where you could activate a much more intense uh, investigation, right? It's kind of like, you know, if you do a model, like the way that, and you actually know this because you built a software model up, but the way that the, the, the human brain actually runs attention, right? There's, there's peripheral attention. We're sort of paying attention broadly and diffusely to lots and lots of things. And then there's a way for there to be a phase transition where you actually get very focused attention. What was that, right? You hear a crackle over there, and all of a sudden the entire system allocates resources to pay very focused attention to that problem. So imagine if you had that, right? You could actually have something with diffuse attention of our decentralized environment is orienting, orienting, orienting. And then when a certain amount of energy is pointed to something, it pops. And you can then do, you you push a button and the right experts, the right people with competence around the problem domain swarm to the problem domain. And maybe you get like 30 distinct working groups that are all looking at it. And all of their outputs are kind of put into a general location. So you actually get this uh, kind of a Bayesian distribution of distinct perspectives of these different working groups. Um, and by the way, 
I would imagine you actually probably want to iterate that two or three times, which is to say that you take the output of the first process, take all of that, make that the input of an iterative of the process. And you have to do it with entirely new groups where you scramble the groups. You actually have a really powerful model for actually shifting cognitive bias and you know, group think and stuff like that. But my guess is that you could probably build something like that that could do you know, two or three iterations and, and not that long, like a period of like a week with 40 or 50 people. And you could get to like an 80th percentile of what our collective intelligence, what our capacity as a population has to be able to make sense of that event and at a, at a very high level, like a radically higher level than we're capable of right now. Um, you know, here are all the important questions that we don't know the answers to. If we want to ask them, we have to kind of expand this thing. And so it'd be like a phase transition from a diffuse environment to a very concentrated environment, which could then have another phase transition or, or de-escalation. And you know, the de-escalation would be, as far as we can tell, red alert, uh, not a red alert. You heard the crack, you look over, it's not a tiger, keep going. Or, okay, actually we need to pay more attention. Uh, uh, what is it? The parasympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system, which is it? I always forget because the naming always throws me off. Yeah, it's like you, ever, you hit your knee and your leg twitches. That's your parasympathetic uh, nervous system. What's the one that, that tr triggers arousal? This is why I keep Daniel around. Well, arousal would be deep in the limbic brain. No, well, let's just go. One of those two systems, you know, I look over, I focus my attention, and then I actually get more pattern recognition that the event that I'm looking at is a real situation. And then what I get is, of course, at the biological level, I get a much harder, higher level of arousal, which includes the activation of the limbic system. When I start seeing adrenaline, I have a, a higher respiratory rate, and a substantially larger amount of neurological resources are focused on what the fuck is that, right? So now that the larger system is now poised to really orient its attention, and now increasingly, as you say, at that point, you know, if, if my focused attention working group start throwing off signals that this is important, then my distributed actuation potential guys are going to take a look at that and say, oh, better pay attention. Now, I've got my makers working on building masks. I've got, you know, hospitals are starting to gear up. Like, that's a mechanism that can actually have a nice feedback loop. So, I think the answer is yes. I don't think it looks like Apollo, but I think that we can take a lot of the learnings of what they did at an abstract level and then say, okay, topologically, how can we actually replicate that using contemporary tools to do something that is functionally equivalent to what they did, but is simultaneously able to use the whole of the population? is able to operate at light speed and is able to do so in the context of an arbitrarily large number of possible threat domains. And at an arbitrary scale. And of course, uh, arbitrary scale doesn't mean always the largest because these things aren't always going to be this big. But there, right. are, there, are, there will be other ugly things, right? Uh, you know, for instance, SARS was handled, right? That we did bottle that up. But there'll be something between SARS and this. So this thing needs to be agile with respect to its allocation of resources, be a bit ahead of the curve, never behind it, but know when to, to uh, yeah. essentially de-escalate. Exactly. I think we got a great design, uh, very, very high level functional specification there. Well, <laughs> now we have to get some whiteboards and get goddamn down to it. Yeah. Uh, well, well, my understanding is we've got $4 trillion to work on it and more, so this shouldn't be that hard to do. You would think, just the shit that falls out of people's pockets. Uh, any final thoughts, Jordan, on how people should be orienting to all this? Well, yeah. I mean, I think that from my point of view, uh, we need to be looking at this again from a complex perspective. So let's take a look at the spillover effects. I mean, it's, it's relatively obvious right now that the financial and economic implications are at least as significant as the medical implications. And we also should be looking at the mental health implications. There's a whole lot of different things that are going on right now and being myopically focused on the thing on the ground because it's very salient and is, you know, has a bit of a Hollywood movie feel to it is unwise. We actually need to have our, our, our vision much wider and taking a look at the whole set of choices that are being made. And, you know, 
there's a lot of choices that are being made. They're going to have extraordinarily significant lasting implications. And I don't really feel particularly confident in the quality of the folks who are putting those choices together just yet. Uh, we, the people, may actually have to start taking matters into our own hands and presenting them with what we think are, in fact, the right ideas. Yep, that makes a lot of sense. It's time for we, the people, to step forth. Well, thanks, Jordan. As always, unbelievably interesting. I'm sure our audience uh, learned a lot and had some serious stimulation. All right. Production services and audio editing by Jared Jaynes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.